Thank you so much for checking out the Connect Church podcast. We hope you're encouraged and inspired by this week's sermon. So let's jump right in and check out this week's message. Hey, I have loved our happy series on Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights, as we have studied through uh, the book of Philippians. And if you can imagine, we're seven sermons in. And today we finish up chapter one. It's just, listen, it's such a wealth of knowledge, insight, practical living for Christ and in Christ. And I've loved our happy series. Remembering this, that our joy in Jesus is not confined to our circumstances, right? That you know what? Although happy is not the end all of our faith, the joy of Jesus is. But I want to tell you this, church. When Jesus is my greatest joy, when Jesus is at the center of my joy, I'm the happiest I can be. In this life. And I know, church, too, you know that to be true. Now, last week we were on vacation down at Perdido Key in Florida. Man, we loved our time. Now, I didn't used to do this as a kid, uh, but my wife did, and probably a lot of you guys. How many of y'all ever gone sand crab hunting on the beach at night with those flashlights and those nets and those, those buckets? Yeah, I didn't do that as a kid. For me, uh, chasing after something that could uh, tear me to pieces, I just, it wasn't for me. But, man, I'm going to tell you something. My kiddos absolutely love it. Night after night, we'd go down the beach, they'd have flashlights in hand, and my kids would storm the beach with nets and buckets. And and listen, my daughter screaming the entire time, my son screaming the entire time, and it was a sight to see to watch them chase around these little crabs in hopes to get them caught in their net. In fact, I just want to share some some highlights just to prove that we did this dangerous activity. There's me and my family one night. So we're fixing to go crab hunting. I, as you can tell, I have a very long net. I don't care nothing get closer than crabs. And so my kids have one that's about three inches long. And anyway, this is my, my son Bennett looking in crab holes. And uh, this is Chloe. Who, man, she, she caught a lot of crabs. She loved it. And then, of course, Avery with her granddad. And, and this is an action scene of all of us going after one single crab that I'm certain was absolutely terrified to see that many human beings going after one little tiny crab. This is what we did night in and night out at the beach. Here's what I knew. I looked at my children, and I saw them as fearless, strong, and brave. That wasn't until one night we got done crab hunting. They gave me their nets and their buckets, and I was carrying. We were walking across that wooden beach access, and we were going along there in the dark, when all of a sudden, right in the middle of that walkway, was a big old sand crab. And my children, who were once fearless, brave, and strong, my girls screamed bloody murder, jumped in our arms crying, and would not walk for the, for the rest of the night. These are the same girls who just spent hours catching these guys, but something changed from when they went from hunting crabs to now they thought they were being hunted by the crabs. Like, everything changed for them in a moment. In fact, my father-in-law, if you want to see a southern gospel singer scream and carry on and dance, listen, you just put a sand crab in there. I had to carry him home that night as well. Listen, it's just, it was amazing. You know, I think about that sand crab hunt, and I go, you know what, in life like that? In one moment, you and I were fearless, only to find ourselves in the next moment absolutely full of fear. In one moment, you and I come to the table and we act so brave in life and in our faith and, and there's sometimes in some seasons where 
all we seem to be doing is running away in cowardice. In one moment, we stand strong, only in the next to find ourselves weak. I think of life a whole lot like what it is for you and I to go crab hunting. You see, I think of our, our conduct, the way we act, the way we live our lives, and our faith oftentimes changes if we're not careful depending on our circumstances, doesn't it? You know, Paul knew this tendency in his life. And on the heels of one of the greatest declarations in all of this letter, while in chains of Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, Paul would say, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now what Paul's doing here is he's wrestling with the real possibility of his death at the hands of the Romans. And yet he finds time to encourage the church. And we continue on in this conversation. Watch what it says here in Philippians chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, I want you to open it up to Philippians chapter 1. And you're going to find in verse 27 this statement from the Apostle Paul. He says this, whatever happens... Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whatever happens, I think of that in our sand crab hunting days, right? Whether you're hunting crabs or you're being hunted by the crabs, right? Whatever happens in life, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. That word conduct in the Greek literally means this. Live your life in such a way that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ. I love what Paul says here, whatever happens. You know what we're finding about Paul? That Paul doesn't live in a what-if faith. He is living out an even-if faith. Let me kind of flesh this out for you. You ready? Paul isn't crippled by the question, what if I die? Rather, he's focused even if I die. For you see, in Paul, what mattered the most was Jesus, and he knew what brought him the greatest joy. And that was making much of Jesus. And I think, believer, today, that it's time that you and I stop being crippled by a what-if faith where we live life scared of what might come next, what might happen next, and be committed to an even-if faith that whatever happens, you ready? Whatever happens, Jesus matters most. And making much of him makes all the difference in the world. It brings about the greatest joy. Whatever happens, live your life, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Doesn't that seem too tall of an order? I read that, and I think, isn't that too high a task for us? You know, I think of the gospel and what Christ has done For you and for me. And you know what? I have never considered myself worthy of the gospel. Even at the end of the day, knowing his love, I have never seen myself worthy of his love and his grace and his forgiveness. And I know I am because I just have never felt that way. So how is it that I act in a way that I don't feel? Now, a couple weeks ago during Memorial Day weekend, I was watching the news I was amazed by the story of a veteran who served in Afghanistan who was doing his job and he stepped on an IED. And his, within a moment, his arms and his legs were gone. Also in that very moment, a dear friend of his lost his life. 
And the discussion was, was how could we really honor those who have fallen this Memorial Day? And he said something to the TV host there that I just thought was amazing. He said, the best way to honor the death of my friend is for you to live your life as a worthy American. He said, for you to live in such a way that you're worthy of the sacrifice my friend made for your freedom. I begin to think of that, and what an incredible statement. What Paul is reinforcing here is the very same, that conducting yourself, living your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ is living a life that is worthy of the very sacrifice Jesus made. Now, i got to throw this out there because sometimes we confuse this in the church. Your conduct, the way you act, does not save you. God's grace does. And I'm going to tell you this though. Such a grace leads to more than merely behavior modification in our lives. It leads to bold, mature believers in Christ. The goal of the gospel is not making good little Christians. But it's about making godly Christ followers. Now I love this in verse 27. What Paul does is Paul begins to employ in the Greek language... The language of citizenship to the Philippian church. So as you read this in verse 27, what Paul is talking, the words he's using are words that describe citizenship. Now, Philippi, we know this, right? The very church Paul's writing to was a Roman colony. Meaning that although Philippi lied hundreds of miles away from the city of Rome, they still enjoyed Roman citizenship. This was a great source of honor for the Philippian people to which Paul is writing. Now, they were Roman citizens who reveled in the prestige of Rome. They, uh, they loved and enjoyed the protection of Roman law. And they also had great pride that comes to belonging to the most powerful empire on the planet. You know what's amazing about people who lived in Philippians, or, yeah, in Philippi, hundreds of miles away from Rome? What's amazing about that? They looked like Romans. They dressed like Romans. They talked like Romans. They acted like Romans. They were Romans, even though they lived somewhere else. You know, later on in the, this letter to the Philippians, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 21, you know what's amazing, verses 20 and 21, you know what's amazing what Paul does? Is he reminds the church, guess what? Let, let me tell you where your citizenship really lies. Not here in this world. But for every believer in Christ, our citizenship is in heaven. And he reminds the churches, he writes them of this very truth. He was saying, you might live here in this world for now, but be reminded your citizenship is in heaven, in Christ. And so he's saying, in light of your citizenship, conduct yourself, live your life as citizens of heaven and not of this world. And you know what it means to live as a citizen of heaven? It means giving all of your life, your heart, to Jesus completely. Not just some of it. If we're not careful, here's what we try to do, church. You ready? We try to compartmentalize our faith, our hearts, and our lives so that we can give Jesus some of us but we don't have to give him all of us. 
I, I bought this the other day off of Amazon. And David helped me get this together. I'm so grateful, my intern David. You ever seen one of these? Just a whole bunch of different compartments, isn't it? It just makes up this one piece. There's a ton of different depart- uh, compartments. And here's what we try to do with our faith. We, we try to do this very thing that you see right in front of you with our faith. Let me give you some examples. You ready? You might say this, God, you, you can have some of my mess. God, this is yours. But, but I'm going to keep my marriage and I'm going to keep my money. Hey, hey, God, I'm okay with you having my Sundays. But, but I'm going to keep what I choose to watch on a screen. Right? This is my part. I'm going to compartmentalize. Hey, hey, God, you know what? You can have my tithe even. That's yours. But, but you, you can't have my time. That, that's, that's, that's mine. I, I want to do with what I want with my, with my time. Hey, God, you know what the truth is? It, is you, can have, you can have some of my faith. But I, I'm going to keep my Facebook post. God, the truth is, is you know what, you, you, can, have, you can have some of my problems, but, but, but I'm going to keep my politics. This, this is mine in my life. You, you know what, God, the truth is, is that you can have a little bit of my generosity, but, but don't you touch my video games. You can't have that. Hey, God, you, you can have, I'm going to give you all the anxiety I can. But, but God, I don't, don't mess with my attitude. That's, that's, that's mine to have. And you know what we begin to find out about what it is to live as a citizen of heaven? Is that Jesus really doesn't want our compartments. You ready? He wants us completely. He doesn't want just some of our heart. He wants all of it. He doesn't just want some of our life. He wants all of your life. And that's what it is to be a citizen of heaven. And you know what? There's this thought line that's going around the church nowadays. You ready? All I have to do is is love Jesus and I can live my life however I want. And I want you to hear me, church. You ready? That is just not true. In fact, such a statement is unbiblical, it is ungodly, and it is unfounded in Scripture. Our lives, let me remind you, church, our lives are not our own. We have been bought at a price. 1 Corinthians chapter 6.20 reminds us our lives are not our own. I ran across this legend of Alexander the Great, the great conqueror. And he was walking amidst his army one day. And he saw a soldier that was a lazy, good-for-nothing soldier. And he looked at that soldier, Alexander the Great did, and said, What is your name? And the soldier looked up at him and said, Well, my name is Alexander, sir. And Alexander the Great looked at him and said this, You either change your name or you change your ways. And he walked away from him. 
You know, I think because you and I, we are, because we are in Christ, we bear his name and must allow him to change our hearts, our lives, and hey, yes, even our ways. I love what Warren Wearsby wrote. He said this, you are writing a gospel, a chapter each day by the deeds that you do and the words that you say. Men, read what you write, whether faithful or true. Just what is the gospel according to you? The challenge is clear by Paul here in Philippians 1.27 that we are to live our lives, not just some of our lives, but all of our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. And the question is, is how? Well, he goes on in Scripture and he begins to teach us that as we conduct ourselves, as we live a life in a manner worthy of the gospel, he teaches us in verse 27, then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, he writes to the church, I will know, now watch this language, that you stand firm in one spirit. That you stand firm. Now imagine with me just a moment, that phrasing there, stand firm. We go from language of citizenship to now language of the military. Standing firm was a picture of a soldier who was shoulder to shoulder, side by side, as close as they possibly could get to another soldier. In this formation, they would hold their shields out and their spears to the side of their shield, and they were to be against any foe, impenetrable. The pictures painted that of a soldier who would defend their position no matter what. And so this is the picture painted by Paul when he says, hey church, stand firm. It was a picture of this Roman military formation. You know what it's a reminder from Paul, church? Hey, that Christianity is not a playground but a battleground. Christianity is not a playground. It is a battleground. He reminds the church that we must stand firm together in one spirit. You ready? His spirit. And this is ever more important since we live in a culture that demands the church to compromise, to change, and to cave. You ready? We cannot compromise. We must not cave. Why? Because a watered-down gospel may sound good, but it saves nobody. It saves absolutely no one. The gospel is not made strong by compromising truth, catering to culture, or caving to bullying. It is made strong by believers, his church, standing firm together. And you know, I thought just for a moment, I thought about the church, and I thought about just a couple of the truths that are so much under attack today in the life of our church and our culture. Truths that you and I must stand firm on while culture clamors for us to compromise. You ready? One of the first truths is this, that we must stand firm, that Jesus, Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes unto the Father except by Him. He is not a way, He is the way. He is not a prophet, religious leader, or a historical figure in and of Himself. He is God in the flesh. Listen, church, we got to stand firm there. We got to stand firm. Mr. Our culture 
that God values all life from the womb to the tomb, that God values and cares and has purpose in all life, has dignity, no matter the color of our skin, no matter the stage of life we are in, no matter the struggles we face. we we got to stand firm there. we we got to stand firm in the celebration of God's design for marriage, for gender, for sexuality, for what God wants to accomplish in the family. The very first institution that God established is under the greatest assault today. we got to celebrate that. Now, I could go all day, but I want to end with this one. It's important that you and I stand firm, unapologetically, unashamedly, unwaveringly, that the Bible is the Word of God. It is infallible, which means without fault. It is inerrant, which means it is without error. And it is inspired, meaning it is of God. God breathe. We must stand firm. And this is the word of God. Back in 1986, I know most of us weren't alive back then. I was just three years old. Back in 1986, Adrian Rogers, one of my favorite pastors, uh, was president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, even to this day, the Southern Baptists are the largest denomination in America. Well, back in 1986, the convention was a threat to split. They were divided. There was a liberal wing of the convention that did not teach that the Bible was infallible, inerrant, was inspired word of God. And then there was the other half that said, no, this is the word of God. Well, guys, this threatened to split the entire convention. Adrian Rogers was the president at the time, and there was a closed-door meeting in which Adrian Rogers sat with a representative of the more liberal side who denied the Word of God. And the person on that more liberal side said, Listen, Adrian, you're going to have to compromise if we're ever going to get together. And as Pastor Justin and I have heard from the person in the room, Adrian Rogers, who was quiet the whole time, brought his hand down on the table and said these words, I am willing to compromise about many things, but not the word of God. So far as getting together is concerned, we don't have to get together. The Southern Baptist Convention does not have to survive. I don't have to be the pastor of Bellevue Baptist Church. I don't have to be loved. I don't have to be liked. I don't even have to live. But I will not compromise the Word of God. Hear me, church. In a crazy cultural situation that we are living in, you don't have to be loved. You don't have to be liked, but don't ever compromise the Word of God. Don't ever compromise what you know to be true because somebody else shouts louder than you. Don't do it. Paul tells them you are to stand firm. I think of the Bible, you know, we don't apologize for its teachings. We don't attempt to appease man or culture by trying to change the Bible to fit the latest narrative or to cater to someone's feelings. We unapologetically, unashamedly study, love, share, teach, and preach the Bible, the Word of God, for it contains the good news, the gospel, 
to a world in desperately need of Jesus. And while culture changes seemingly day by day, the Word of God remains the same. It has and it will stand forever. And so we must stand firm together. You ready? Side by side, shoulder to shoulder, standing firm with one spirit in Christ. Paul goes on and he writes this on in verse, the latter part of verse 27 and verse 28. Stand firm, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. I love, again, a language shift here. In the beginning, we talked citizenship. Just a moment ago, early on in verse 27, we talked Roman military formations. And now the language shifts here to the language of athletics. About teamwork. Striving together carries with it the picture of a team fearlessly working together to achieve the victory. Fearlessly working together to achieve the victory. You know what Paul says? For you to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, for you to live your life that way, you ready, church? You've got to stand firm. Now, now listen, that doesn't mean be hateful. doesn't mean to be arrogant and prideful. doesn't mean to go out there and hate people who don't believe or look or act like you. Listen, not at all is that the cause. And by the way, you do that, you look nothing like the gospel of Jesus Christ. You look nothing like it. But you know what? As we love and as we serve, you can stand firm. And, and this is what Paul says, and you gotta, you got to stand together. I'm going to kill this bottle. Okay, here you go. you got to stand together. Oh, it popped open. Hey, it's alcohol. It's good. Don't drink it. All right, you just keep right there. Jody, you watch your husband, okay? Just, just make sure he don't. Or is my mom here? Anyway, all right, we got to watch out for my mom too. All right. Lord have mercy. Mom will get all crying. Anyway, listen, we have got... We've got to strive together. Think of this, you ready? What else can bring the founding church, right? The rich seeker in Lydia, a poor slave girl, and a suicidal jailer together on the same team? You ready? The church, the family of God, the gospel. Verse 28 teaches us that the church, standing firm together as a team, striving, working together fearlessly, points a lost and dying world to Jesus. I can smell that so bad. It's wafting up into my fan. <laughs> if I start talking a little different, just know. Um, hey, listen, let me share this last part of this scripture with you. How is it that we live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ? Watch as Paul ends chapter 1. Verse 29, watch it, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but watch this, but to suffer for him since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. You see, the Philippian church, because of their faith in Jesus, were having those in their community rise up against them. Paul says, I've been there. I've been where you are. Now, listen to how Paul describes this, this suffering which has been granted to you as if it was like they gave him a gift of suffering. Like as if this church was given a gift of 
suffering. You and I don't ever see suffering quite like that. But Paul did. Because whether it was him being falsely accused, falsely imprisoned, chained to a guard as he was writing this letter, or all the suffering that he knew, guess how Paul saw suffering? As a gift that brought him closer to Jesus. Angie, we just talked about that, didn't we, this past week? Miss Angie just has heroically fought an incredible battle against cancer. And um, we had a chance just to talk through that this past week. How suffering, in the craziest of ways, can be a gift that draws us closer to Jesus. I think of Tim Keller. Now, you probably don't know his name, but listen, one of the greatest preachers and authors of our time. He was up at a church um, in the city. He, I've read so many of his books. Listen to one of his quotes about suffering. You ready? He says, there is a purpose to suffering, and if faced rightly, it can drive us like a nail deep into the love of God and into more stability and spiritual power than you can imagine. Last week, Tim Keller let his friends and family and fans know that he was just diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and only has a few days left on this earth. It's one thing to quote something, but now he is living that out in his life. You ready? Paul gives us a total picture here. A life lived worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ is a church who stands firm together, who strives together, and even suffers together. Therefore, on the other side of all of this is a joy that cannot be broken, cannot be taken, and cannot be shaken. I want to close with this today. Y'all probably don't know this guy. Now, he's lived in the community you've lived in for a long time. 87 years old. Every time, especially as we were starting to plant this church, I'd go to my brother's church, Oak City, there on Boyd's Creek, and I'd preach. This guy right here was so kind to me. We would, we would get together, and we would make fun of my brother, who's the pastor. Right? I just I love those times with him. He was, he was known for giving out candy to the kids all the time. In fact, my, my nephew Jackson, who's, Aaron, what is he, probably 10 years old nowadays? I, I can't ever place kids in their ages. Anyway, but, but about 10 years old now, about five years ago, he gave him a peppermint once, and he almost choked and died. And, uh, and so now my nephew's still afraid of peppermint. So this is just the guy he was, right? He, and he just loved, and just a, a great man. He, he would, he'd tell my, my brother, who's a pastor, he'd say to his pastor, he said, uh, you know what, I'm getting old. I'm going to die. And my brother would always look at him and go, don't you do it while I'm on vacation. Don't you mess up my vacation. And he'd go, how do you want to go? And, and, and Cal would say, I want to eat my favorite meal, and then I want to sit in my favorite chair, and the next thing I know, I want to be with Jesus. And so this past week, Cal ate his favorite meal for lunch, cabbage and cornbread. I'll be honest, not sure why you choose that. But he was there. He sat in his favorite recliner, and the next thing you know, he woke up with Jesus. Cal, you don't know his name. He's lived in our community. He's a Navy vet. Spent the latter years of his life subbing and all across Sevier County in the schools. Cal, faithfully married to his wife of 63 years, Miss Barb. Cal was a big proponent of, man, just keep in with your marriage. 
Stay strong in your marriage. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. Don't ever, don't ever give up. Don't ever give in. Just such a strong encourager of, of marriage. And Cal today is at home with the Lord. Now, he wasn't a pastor. He wasn't a missionary on a foreign field. He was a man that at a young age, Jesus saved him. And you know what he's done ever since that day? He's lived his life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He stood, he stood firm in his faith no matter where he served. He strived together with his church at Oak City just down the road for over 20 Five years at one church where he was a proud member. He helped others as they suffered and struggled through times. And though you might know his, not know his name, the Lord does. Though you might not know his story, oh, people around him knew his story. Just the other night, Friday night, my brother was preaching his funeral. A packed church there. Off Voids Creek. And Barb, Cal's wife, said, listen, Pastor Chris, if you don't share the gospel, I'm going to do it. You give an invitation. You see, sitting on the front row was Cal's 39-year-old grandson, who Cal has been paying for 20 years to give his heart and his life to Jesus. My brother gives the invitation and invites anyone who made a decision to come down. And all of a sudden... The silence was broken through with weeps out loud. As Cal's grandson, 39 years old, prayed 20 years for, stands up and gives his heart and his life to Jesus. You might not know his name. You might not know his story. He may not have been a pastor or a missionary or a worship leader. But this guy lived his life in a manner worthy of the gospel. And it made all the difference in the world, even after his death. Let's pray. Thank you again for checking out our podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date on our services. If you'd like to give to support our ministry, you can do that at our website. That's connectchurchpf.com. Hope you enjoyed and have a great week.